The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. More black eyes for AstraZeneca as the maker continues to big shifts on the COVID vaccine rollout. Party like it's 1989, how one sector of the market just one trading day away from making history. And turning the heat up, Beijing continues its crackdown on Alibaba founder Jack Ma, the latest turn of events in the ongoing saga. In Alabama, the counting continues in what could be the first U.S. warehouse to vote for unionization, but the e-commerce giant not going down without a fight. And get ready for round two in Augusta as the Masters rolls on. It is Friday, April 9th, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Who's in a Caddyshack kind of mood this morning? Good morning. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan today here on Worldwide Exchange, kicking off your Friday morning with stock futures somewhat stable. That's what we'll call them. We're near record highs here for some of the major indexes. The S&P is implied higher by just about five points. The Dow Jones higher by 56 and the Nasdaq underperforming ever so slightly implied down 11 points at the opening bell if these futures moves hold into regular cash equities trading. Now, the major averages are coming off a mostly higher session with the S&P notching yet another intraday record high. The Dow Industrials up about 1%, the S&P up about 2%, and the Nasdaq Composite up 2.5% just in this past week. Yesterday was all about big technology stocks, rallies in names like Apple, Netflix, Microsoft, helping the broader markets overall. The Nasdaq popping more than 1% and up now more than 2.5% so far this week. Let's check on the global markets now around the world. As you can see there, a mixed picture overnight in Asia that saw Hong Kong fall more than one and a half percent, predominantly red, except for Thailand, a lone stick out there in Japan as well. Europe is also getting its trading day warmed up here. You can see their early trading, early action, mostly red across the continent. The German DAX just about flat on the day. The FTSE 100 in the UK off about one quarter of one percent. The same size gain, though, in the CAC in France. For more now on what's ahead for your market trading day is now we are joined now by Federated Hermes Portfolio Manager and Equity Strategist Steve Chevron. Steve, I wonder right now, another day, another record high for the S&P 500. There's got to be a point where you are at least somewhat worried about valuations. Uh, not when bond yields are still this low, not when credit spreads are this high. Um, and, and frankly, you know, in our forecast, we've got a 4,500 uh year-end S&P 500 target, I don't need the PE to expand to get there. Uh, you know, we're going to generate 20, 25% earnings growth this year. So, you know, we'll grow into the multiple. Um, and in fact, we expect the multiple to be flat this year, not necessarily get any more expensive. But when you look at how low bond yields are, when you look at how tight credit spreads are, stocks aren't all that stretched versus historic uh, valuations. 
Steve, bond yields are, yes, relatively low, but they're higher than they were three or four months ago, five months ago, yet the markets are at record highs. Take us through the math. I mean, the capital asset pricing model, risk models, I mean, interest rates are rising. Why aren't valuations falling? Because spreads have because spreads have also compressed. So our work has suggested over the years that it's actually not the ten-year yield or the Treasury bond that determines the valuation on stocks. It's corporate bonds, and so yes, the ten-year has risen, but spreads have compressed. So overall, if you were to look at where the corporate bond yield is today, it would suggest the market could trade as high as 24, 25 times. We don't expect that it necessarily will, but it's consistent with those levels of valuations. You got to look at both spreads and yields. All right. So if those valuations are somewhat justified, in your opinion, at these levels right now, we are entering yet another catalyst filled season. Yes, it is earnings season once again. Next week, we've got the big banks kicking things off. What exactly then would you be looking for from a fundamental standpoint about stocks and Mm -hmm. these companies? What are they going to report? What do they need to report in order to maintain this kind of upward trajectory for stocks? Yeah, look, I, th- I think the first and the most important thing is once we get first quarter earnings starting next week, it's going to become apparent very quickly that the earnings recession is over, that we're no longer in a position of having year-over-year earnings declines. Part of that's just the, the, the comps from last year. But more importantly, it looks like we're going to start growing earnings this year 20 25%. And in particular, what we're looking for in this first quarter, yes, but more so even in the second quarter of July, is the value cyclical stocks should generate ridiculously good year-over-year earnings growth. I'm talking two, 200 plus percent. Uh, and we think the relative differential there versus the growth can propel, can propel these value cyclicals to one more, you know, really good period of outperformance here over the next couple of months. I mean, it's all relative, right? These are, these are, this is like the definition of easy comps at this point, because things were just so bad last year at this That's point right. here. If you take a look at the way that things are playing out, are there places in the market right now that you would key on as being key drivers of that big move. A lot of people argue, and maybe rightfully so, Steve, that the earnings optimism is already priced into stocks that have gone up the way that they have over the last six months, especially in value cyclical. Yeah, I, I, I think there's an understanding that these parts of the market are going to do well. I think, you know, there's the old Mike Tyson line, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. And so, you know, what's the punch in the face that I think comes this summer? I, I think this this summer is going to be something like a modern day GI's returning home moment um, in a lot of ways, and so when you look at uh, consumer comfort and even just going to a restaurant, maybe it's fifty percent. When you look at reopening, there's still several big states, California, New York, that that really haven't reopened to the same kind of uh, uh, extent that that you know Florida and Texas may have, and so I, I think you're going to be surprised at quite how strong the consumer comes back this summer. I think you're going to be quite how strong, how how robust earnings and GDP growth is. Uh, And I think the market may not have that totally priced in just quite yet. Really quickly, do you have a favorite sector out there right now? Anything related to people leaving their home and spending on experiences. So think about things like consumer services, restaurants, hotels, casinos. I know they run. They're big percentage moves, but they're coming off of a very low base. All right. Steve Chevron, Federated Hermes. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend, sir. You too, sir. All right. Thank you very much. To some of this morning's other top stories here, Procter & Gamble reportedly joined forces with a number of Chinese trader groups in an effort to develop a workaround for Apple's upcoming software rollout, one that intends to give users more control over their privacy. Now, according to The Wall Street Journal, P&G, among the world's largest advertisers, could implement a technology called fingerprinting, which could track user data in a way Apple is seeking to prevent. 
Well, proxy advisory firm Institutional Shareholder Services, ISS, is joining forces with Glass-Lewis in recommending shareholders reject a proposed $30 million pay package for Johnson & Johnson CEO Alex Gorski. The proposal has attracted investor scrutiny because it partially shields Gorski from the nearly $9 billion in costs over two years associated with lawsuits linked to the opioid crisis and allegations of asbestos in some of its talc and baby powder products. And Facebook platforms, including WhatsApp, Messenger and Instagram, are back up again after going dark for thousands of users late yesterday. According to DownDetector.com, users reported more than 120 or 112,000 issues on Facebook's website and 101,000 issues with Instagram. No word from Facebook yet on the causes of those outages. To another developing story this morning, authorities in Beijing are reportedly forcing an elite business school founded by Jack Ma, the Alibaba founder, to halt all enrollments. That's according to the Financial Times. The enrollment halt comes amid China's continued crackdown on Ma's business interests. Remember, late last year, Ant Group, a financial affiliate of Alibaba, abruptly abruptly suspended its planned $37 billion IPO in Shanghai following pressure from the authorities there. So joining me now is the Financial Times Beijing Bureau Chief Tom Mitchell. Tom, good afternoon to you in Beijing. Let's talk about what exactly is driving this. How can the Chinese government do this? And and what exactly are they doing to Jack Ma's school? Well, the Chinese Communist Party can really do pretty much whatever it wants. If the U.S. government tried something like this, um, the uh, affected university might might sue and might end up winning in court. That's not going to happen in China. Essentially, what's happened is Jack Ma has a very prestigious executive training program. Imagine Mark Zuckerberg running one of these things. Um, but it's actually only except students who are already established business people with companies with more than 30 people, revenues of about at least $5 million a year. And essentially a new freshman class was supposed to be starting a couple weeks ago. Um, that class, it will not be starting. Um, the old, the um, more senior classes are, classes are still ongoing, but uh, Jack has not been allowed to uh, recruit a new freshman class. Tom, Tom what, what, what can you tell us, what, what is the inclination here from the Chinese Communist Party? Why are they doing this? What is the motivation? What does this school either symbolize or what is it actually doing that is so threatening to them? Um, it's definitely not a, a significant threat to the Chinese Communist Party. This story around Jack Ma right now, there's two elements to it. One is simply the crackdown in the business sphere reigning in Ant and also his e-commerce group, Alibaba. Um, Those companies are not going to be as big and powerful as they were before once a regulatory settlement is reached. Um, However, you've got to think about Jack Ma, the one of the most influential people in China and arguably one of China's most influential people on the international stage. And the party is worried about that second sphere of influence. And here's a very rich, powerful businessman who was bringing in um, talented businessmen into his own and businesswoman into his own school and kind of training up a, a loyal uh, uh, following of alumni. And that kind of organization outside the party's limits um, outside of its direct control is something it gets really worried about. Uh, if anyone was doing that in China, let alone Jack Ma, the party probably would not tolerate it for very long. 
Tom, we know that the uh, Chinese government has been looking towards big technology and media companies for some time now, handing out seemingly small fines that are significant in terms of the overall signal they're sending. What exactly can we expect reverberations wise? Is there a signal that other tech companies out there will say, hey, you know, maybe we'll take notes? What exactly can we expect from the other tech companies in China? Well, so an, an up-and-coming e-commerce company, kind of the number three player in the market, Pinduoduo, their chairman, Colin Wong, uh, recently abruptly resigned, obviously already a very rich man, but he was on a path to um, becoming a, a Jack Ma-type character. Uh, he's departed the scene. Um, it's obviously a very difficult time to be running a big tech company. Um, the People's Bank of China, which is leading the regulatory negotiations with Ant, they've published rules um, which haven't been fully implemented yet, but it made it very clear that Ant and its biggest rival, uh, Tencent, um, will probably be subject to uh, anti-market uh, rectifications in the near future. Um, so it's not just Ant and Alibaba that are going to be affected. All the big players are definitely going to be affected by this, uh, this current government uh, drive. All right. Thank you, Tom Mitchell, Financial Times, Beijing Bureau Chief. We appreciate it. Have a nice weekend, sir. You too. When we come back on the show, from tight to saggy, what the CEO of Levi Strauss is saying about the future of his business. We're talking denim coming up. Plus, much more on the botched AstraZeneca rollout and the new pressure facing the company this morning as well. And later on, it's round two at the Masters in Augusta, Georgia. We check in with the Golf Channel on the leaderboard, the names to watch, and all of the big stories around Augusta National Golf Club. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's check on some of the big stock movers so far today. Toshiba falling more than 5% in Japanese trading after the company's chairman issued a cautious statement on a more than $20 billion buyout offer from private equity firm CVC Capital Partners. He says the offer was unsolicited. CVC didn't go through a detailed review of Toshiba's business, and any deal would be subject to approval from regulators in Japan and other countries as well. You can see those shares off 5% in Japan. Levi Strauss reporting a better-than-expected first quarter. Digital sales jumping 41%, more than making up for a drop in sales at physical store locations. The company raising its revenue outlook for the first half of the year as well as it banks on vaccines to spur a return to normal. CEO Chip Berg telling Jim Cramer 
looser fitting jeans are the fastest growing part of the business and could create a new denim cycle. Those shares up 5% pre-market. And WD-40 saw sales rise in the second quarter, but CEO Gary Ridge says supply chain issues have affected the company's ability to meet demand. WD-40 continues to see high demand for its products due to what it calls isolation renovation trends related to the pandemic. Those shares sliding about 8% in the pre-market. Well, shares of FUBU TV are jumping as well. The streaming TV provider securing the exclusive rights to the South American qualifying matches for the 2022 World Cup. Those rounds will begin in June. Those shares of 5% pre-market. Well, still on deck for the show, the controversy continues amid a closely watched Amazon union election in Alabama. What Amazon, being, what Amazon is doing to tilt the scales in its favor is being accused of anyway. That's coming up next. Today's big number, 458%. That's the jump in Robinhood users that traded crypto on the platform during the first quarter compared to Q4. 9.5 million people traded cryptocurrencies on Robinhood at the end of March. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back. The first round of the 85th Masters is in the books, but for the players, the course at Augusta National is nothing like nothing they've seen in the past years, at least in November, with many of the big names like Bryson DeChambeau, Rory, DJ, Spieth, all being tamed by the conditions out there. Not so, though, for Justin Rose. The Englishman stands alone after the first day. He shot a seven-under round for a 65 and has a four-shot lead over Brian Harmon and Hideki Matsuyama. That's the largest first-round lead at any major since the end of World War II. Yeah, that's a long time. Let's talk more about the Masters with Damon Hack, co-host of Golf Today on the Golf Channel. Damon, it's great to see you here. We've done a lot of crossovers with me over at the Golf Channel. It's nice to have you here in the CNBC world as well. Thanks for joining us this morning. Domino, good morning. Great to spend some time with you, pal. All right, so, so let's talk about what's happening at Augusta National. How surprised were you? How surprised were the patrons at Augusta National about just how tough the conditions were? You know, we could kind of see it coming uh, from the practice rounds earlier in the week. A lot of the players were saying the course was playing as firm and fast uh, as they could remember in recent years. Fred Couples saying on a Wednesday he had never seen the greens as fast as they were. A big departure from November when the temperatures were cooler and the golf course was much more scorable and soft. Coming in, we knew this would be a very different Masters, and that's what we're getting so far. Very tough to score out here. What, what's the feeling like? I mean, this is, this is, again, a live sporting event. We see patrons out there. That's what they call the fans at Augusta National. What exactly is the sense? How does it feel overall having those spectators back on the facility grounds? I'd say it's a sense of gratitude, a sense that we're almost returning to normal in this era of COVID-19. It's not as many 
patrons on the grounds as normal, but more than we saw in November. And it's kind of one step forward uh, to golf returning to, to 100% hopefully soon. Golf obviously was one of the, the leading sports during the pandemic because you can socially distance safely, be outside uh, in nature. So I think a lot of people on the ground are just thankful. The feeling is gratitude that there's golf to talk about and that there are patrons on the ground to enjoy it. One of the big things that we saw and that really struck a chord with me was watching the, the ceremonial open of, of the Masters this year. I know that you had spent some time over the years, but, but just this week alone with, with Lee Elder, a, a man who is, has, has been at the forefront of a diversity initiative in golf for, for decades at this point now. C- can you take us through the story of, of your relationship with him and what he's meant to you and, and, and how exactly he's impacted you in golf storytelling? Sure. I first uh, covered Lee Elder in 2008. I wrote a story on him, uh, a profile for Sports Illustrated magazine, and we've kept in touch on and off through the years. And of course, yesterday he was a ceremonial starter, starter alongside Jack Nicholas and Gary Player to honor Lee Elder for breaking the color barrier here at the Masters in 1975. So 46 years later, uh, as an 86-year-old man, his life has come full circle here. Uh, In 1975, he had to rent two houses because he faced so many death threats. It's a very similar um, walk of life that uh, Henry Aaron faced in the 1970s as he chased down Babe Ruth's all-time home run record. They, in fact, uh, were dear friends, Lee Elder and Hank Aaron. So neat to see him receive some adulation on the first tee yesterday, a lot of love, warm applause for a man whose road was very different than one for, for Gary Player or Jack Nicklaus because of the color of his skin. You know, Damon, I know that you were kind of covering things as well down there. Uh, Augusta National Chairman Fred Ridley uh, is in focus a lot here. The state of Georgia in focus uh, on the political front because of some uh, voting laws that that can be seen as discriminating against certain people out there in in terms of voting. I mean, his his statement was, I believe, as as everyone in our organization, this is Fred Ridley, the Augusta National Chairman, that the right to vote is fundamental in our democratic society. No one should be disadvantaged in exercising that right. How much has Fred Ridley kind of taken Augusta National into this kind of new generation of golf in this sport? And, And how much is that focal point on Georgia going to be something that Augusta National will deal with in the coming weeks and months? You know, Don, it was very different than things I've used to, been used to hearing. I've covered 11 Masters. Uh, usually the chairman, they kind of keep their focus on the golf course, inside the ropes. And for Fred Ridley on Wednesday to say that, you know, disenfranchisement of voters is anathema to our beliefs here at Augusta uh, was a different tack than the club uh, has taken in recent years. I think it's a reminder of the era that we're living in. Uh, many discussions about diversity, equity, inclusion are, are top of mind for a lot of companies and a lot of entities, golf included. And I think Fred Ridley's comments were a kind of an echo of that sentiment uh, in the current state of the United States. All right. Damon Hack over at Golf Channel, the co-host of Golf Today. Thank you very much. And we look forward to your coverage for this weekend as well. Have a great day, sir. Thanks so much, Dom. Thanks, Damon. Well, straight ahead on the show, it's been a red-hot sector these past 10 weeks, but is the track running out for the transport sector? One top-ranked industry analyst weighs in. That's coming up after this break.
Amazon appears to be taking a commanding lead in that highly watched union vote in Alabama as a large chunk of those ballots come under question. More hurdles for AstraZeneca amid continued concerns over clotting issues allegedly tied to its COVID vaccine as Australia ups its orders from another treatment maker. And the transports firing on all cylinders as the sector looks to notch its best week since 1989. We talked to one top analyst on whether the rally has the fuel to keep going. It is Friday, April 9th, 2020, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back in TGIF. I'm Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan this morning on Worldwide Exchange. Here is how stock futures are looking as we are halfway through the 5 a.m. Eastern time hour. You can see the Dow implied lower or higher now by roughly 60 points. The S&P higher by five points and the Nasdaq down by just about 10. Very marginal declines implied at the opening bell for the Nasdaq. The major averages are coming off a mostly higher session with the S&P notching, yes, yet another record intraday all time high. Yesterday, that was all about big technology, rallies and names like Apple, Netflix, Microsoft and others helping the broader markets. The Nasdaq popping more than one percent. It is now up more than two and a half percent, as you can see so far this week, leading the gains for the major three indexes. Now to this morning's top stories. Amazon appears to hold a strong lead in that historic union vote at one of its warehouses in Alabama. About half of the thirty two hundred ballots cast have been counted as of last night so far. 1,100 votes have been against unionization, with 463 votes in support. Now, Amazon is facing criticism for pushing to install a mailbox outside the warehouse, a potential tactic to deter workers from voting to unionize out of the fear that the company may actually see who's voting with those ballots. Meanwhile, Reuters is reporting that roughly 500 ballots submitted in that vote are being challenged. The report says that those challenged ballots could take a significant role if the pro-unionization vote closes the current gap. The validity of those votes were brought into question over matters like suspicion of tampering, a voter's eligibility, and other issues as well. And the CEO of Wynn Resorts is calling on more of his employees to get the COVID-19 vaccine. In a video sent to staff, CEO Matt Maddox encouraged workers to consider getting vaccinated or else they'll have to take a weekly COVID test to prove that they're not carrying the virus. Speaking with our own Jim Cramer just last night on Mad Money, Maddox said getting a shot will not be required. I don't think it's our job to be mandating vaccines for everybody, but what I am mandating is that we're COVID free in our staff. So you're you're either vaccinated or you're tested every week. All right. Speaking of those vaccinations, new developments surrounding the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine. Australia is upping its orders of the Pfizer treatment amid continued concerns of potential blood clots tied to the AstraZeneca shot. Our own Juliana Tattlebaum is live in London with the latest there on that AstraZeneca story. Good morning, Juliana. Tom, good morning. So in terms of the latest, the Australian government has come out and said it now recommends that all those people under the age of 50 should seek the Pfizer jab instead of the AstraZeneca shot. And this comes after a number of similar decisions from uh, health authorities around Europe and even in the UK after European and UK health regulators earlier this week came out saying that there is a possible link between the Oxford AstraZeneca jab and these very rare number of blood clots. Now, in terms of what this means, 
means for Australia, it puts a lot more pressure on them uh, to use the Pfizer vaccine. And as a result, Australia has upped its order, doubling the number of doses it's ordered to 40 million. But those additional doses are not set to come through until later this year. So it does mean a delay to the Australia vaccination rollout. Now, separately on AstraZeneca, we also heard from the French health regulator this morning. And one of the big questions right now for all these countries adjusting their guidance is what happens to those people who've been given one jab of AstraZeneca, but not their second. And the French regulator has come out saying their recommendation, if you are under the age of 55 and receive the AstraZeneca shot for your first jab, you should get an mRNA vaccine for your second. And that follows similar guidance from Germany issued last week. Dom? Juliana, can you kind of tell us a little bit about the, the, the color and context around the reopening that's happening in Europe right now? Are there certain places that are progressing quicker than others? Are there places on the continent that, that are perhaps looking to more lockdowns, being more restrictive? I, I say this because I look at social media. I look at posts from places like in Germany and Italy. Some people show empty streets and empty cafes. Other people show that things are kind of moving around. What exactly is the kind of overall take for who's doing what in Europe with regard to reopening? Mm. Well, the big distinction I would make is between the UK and the continental uh, European region. Here in the UK, Monday marks a major milestone in the reopening of the UK economy. We are going to be able to dine outdoors, and also we're going to have a non-essential retail reopen for the first time since December. So big changes here in the UK as the vaccination rollout goes full steam ahead. In Europe, it's a very different picture, and we are seeing many European economies pushing for more restrictions. Just this morning, the German health minister, Jens Spahn, came out calling for uh, more restrictions in Germany, a more unified response there, because the uh, case numbers in Europe, by and large, are not looking great. All right. Juliana Tattelbaum, live in London with the latest there on the AstraZeneca jab, as well as the European uh, reopening efforts. Thank you very much. Have a nice weekend, Juliana. Back to the markets now. And one <laughs> sector so that continues to outperform is the transportation stocks. Though down fractionally the past three days, the Dow Transport's still higher on the week and on pace for its longest weekly win streak since 1989 when it rallied for 11 straight weeks. The Dow Transportation Index, trucking. Among the names in the group that are the top of the list, Kansas City Southern, that's a deal news story there. United Airlines on the reopening trade, Avis as well, FedEx and American Airlines. So can the win streak break the record Joining me now is top-ranked transportation analyst with Deutsche Bank, Amit Marotra. I mean, this is crazy to think about. Just a year ago, we were talking about nothing with regard to travel, and now airlines are some of the best-performing stocks in the entire market. Is it justified, all of the optimism, and transportation stocks in general? Well, yes. I mean, I think, I think a year ago, um, with you know, the, the call that we made here at Deutsche Bank was that the macro conditions were set for a significant expansion in valuation. And that occurred um, pretty significantly last year. Coming into this year, the call we made was that earnings growth and demand was just going to be a lot better than consensus and most people were thinking. And I think that's starting to come to fruition. For the, uh, we said, you know, in our outlook report for 2021, it was one of the most bullish outlook reports that we've written in almost 20 years of writing research. Uh, the consumer economy is on fire. It's been a very odd recession, uh, Dom, in terms of um, housing prices improving, um, 401k balances, all-time highs, um, inventory balances low, stimulus checks in the mail. The consumer is feeling better. They're healthier fiscally. They're in better balance sheet conditions. 
all the while the industrial economy is reawakening from uh, a year-long hibernation. And you can see that in oil prices. You can see that in Boeing resuming production. You can see that in auto production resuming on the back of the ship shortage, hopefully in the second half. So really every major driver of the economy, both on the consumer and industrial side, we believe, and we've written about this, is going to be firing on all cylinders over the course of 2021. And really, you haven't seen anything yet because this is all starting to inflect at the moment and it will accelerate over the course of 2021. All right. So, so this is this is it's crazy because last year, Amit, we had this kind of weird divergence from within the transportation index. You had some serious underperformance in airline and travel related companies. And then you had some crazy outperformance in logistics companies because we're all staying at home and working at home and ordering more stuff and having mm-hmm. it all shipped to us. What's going to be the biggest theme that drives the transportation story in 2021? Well, I think the divergence uh, last year was explained by two key things. One is debt. <laughs> transportation and logistics companies don't have, which is in my area of expertise, don't have as much debt. And number two, um, obviously, as you pointed out correctly, the end market demand was very different in terms of nobody flying versus everybody ordering things online. I think the key thesis over the next six to nine months is going to be how strong demand is. Um, you know, most of the country, most of the world has been restricted for the last year and a half. Um, once everybody, you know, the majority of the population gets vaccinated, restrictions ease, I think it's going to release or we think it's going to release um, uh, a pretty massive pent up demand uh, like we've really never seen before. And the only thing I could re- resemble it to is basically 2014. In the first quarter, we had the polar vortex that took GDP down over 1%. That snapback GDP growth in the second and third quarter were four to five percent in the second and third quarter, respectively. We're, we're going to see something like that only on a much bigger scale. Sure. Uh, don't underestimate the pent up demand release and don't underestimate volume growth over the course of 2021. All right, Amit, we, we've got a little time left here. I, I want to know. Let's give our viewers and listeners out there some actionable intelligence. What do you think is going to be the outperformer in transports and what are you staying away from? Well, last time I came on, I think Union Pacific was at 175 and today it's a little over $220. So that worked out well. I think, listen, you know, for us, the key right now is trucking. Okay. So I think KNX, Night Transportation is the largest trucking company in the country. Um, I think they're really well positioned for what's going on today. Um, XPO is also another name that I think is really well positioned, both fundamentally and as well as some of the spin activity and special situation activity around that name. Saya, Old Dominion, there's a lot of trucking names out there that are really well positioned for a lot of the demand drivers that we see at Deutsche Bank sees over the next several, several quarters. All right. Deutsche Bank's Amit Marotra, thank you very much for that. He's got some calls on those names as well. A top pick, though, for, for his world coming for the transportation stocks is in trucking. Thank you very much, sir. Coming up Thanks, on the show, John. Impossible Foods apparently looking to jump on the SPAC bandwagon in its bid to go public. The new data on why that trends boom could be stalling out. We'll White Exchange is back in a moment. Welcome back. Impossible Foods is in talks to enter the public markets through a, yes, SPAC merger. That's according to Reuters. The move could value the alternative meat company at over $10 billion 
far more than the current valuation of around $4 billion. The move would come after a record quarter for those special-purpose acquisition companies. According to Refinitiv, 103 SPAC combinations were announced in Q1 2021, worth over $228 billion combined. However, only about a quarter of the SPACs listed since 2019 have actually completed some deals so far. The SPAC boom could be showing signs of stalling out as private funding for public equity is drying up. 28 SPACs went public in March and a record 41 in February, while only four have gone public within the month or so of April so far. For more on the SPAC boom and maybe stall, let's bring in Matt Toole, Director of Deals Intelligence at Refinitiv. Matt, is the SPAC boom over? I think it's on a pause right now as the market digests the sheer level of, of activity that we've seen over the past three months. We estimate that almost 500 companies are looking for M&A transactions right now. So I think investors and you know just general, the investment community is looking uh, at the deals that have been done and, and potential targets and, and taking a bit of a, a pullback to assess where the market is right now. So what exactly is kind of driving some of that? Is it, is it the, the rising interest rate picture? It seems to be affecting so many parts of the market. Is it the idea that maybe investor sentiment is changing? Is it the notion that maybe target companies are not as plenty as they were maybe in the last six to 12 months? I, th- I think it's a combination of, of all of that. Uh, you have to really you know, look at, you know, we, we've had 770 public companies come on the scene in the last 12 months, which is the highest level of activity in 25 years. So you know, these and, and many of them are these back these back deals, which were not even on the radar before. So all searching for targets, all searching for business combinations in a similar uh, value range. Uh, you, know, you know, obviously the valuation story comes into play here as well. So I do think that there's now, you know, just a very large amount of capital in the system looking for only a certain real number of companies at this point. Um, and I think, you know, that is really causing the market to, to take pause right now. Has, has, there, there, has there been something thematic, uh, Matt, about the types of deals that are being done in SPACs? It, for me, at least, intuitively, kind of covering news the way that we do in business news, it, it seems that it's, it's like these transformational type companies, ones with a lot of upside. I think like electric vehicles and battery technology, clean tech, that sort of thing. Is that the type of thing that goes through a SPAC? Or why don't people just do traditional IPOs anymore? Well, so far, we are seeing very much that it's the kind of alternative IPO story, which might maybe struggle with a roadshow, might have a little bit of a, you know, a different story to tell. So as you said, some of the electric car makers, um, you know, even WeWork uh, and some of the alternative um, you know, public lane companies, um, but then also Virgin Galactic and, and trips into space. So it has been a little bit of an alternative scenario as far as the, the public company story. And it is also in a certain size range. So I think there are a number of companies that could potentially you know, move out of the traditional IPO range and move into this back world. But you do have to have the right valuation. You have to have the right investor story and also you know, some of the other uh, related financing that also goes along with it, which seems to be a little bit of the issue right now with the, the slowdown we're seeing this week. Do you feel as though there will be more scrutiny over the sponsors, the managers that are raising funds in these special purpose acquisition companies in the coming months? Do you feel as though investors, given about a year or so of this kind of a SPAC boom, are now a little bit more at least kind of skeptical and, and maybe exercising a little bit more due diligence on the types of money and the managers that are kind of putting these deals together? I think that I think that is the case. I think you know you look at the kind of prolific SPAC issuers that we've seen in the market, like Churchill and fintech acquisition and Gore's and Social Capital, and some of those that have been able to you know strike deals, have a track record. There might be some thinning out of some of the other peripheral SPACs, certainly, 
Um, I think, you know, that is certainly a, an aspect. And then, you know, with anything, with this level of volume, with this level of capital being raised, it is going to draw, you know, certainly scrutiny, potentially regulation, and, you know, a little bit of a closer look from the investor community. And I think that is also happening right now as well. All right. Matt Tool at Refinitiv covers the SPAC market. Thank you very much, sir. Have a nice weekend. On deck for the show, the Dow and the S&P looking to notch a three-week winning streak as investors gear up for earnings season. Hightower's Stephanie Link lays out the moves investors need to make ahead of those big results. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange each morning, check us out on Spotify, Apple, other podcast applications. And April is Financial Literacy Month. CNBC is committed to sharing messages from business and thought leaders about the importance of financial education. Here is Acorn's CEO, Noah Kerner. In money, as in everything, knowledge is power. And it's not just about knowing, it's about remembering at the right moments so that you make the right decisions. You need to remember the power of sticking with it during difficult times. You need to remember that every downturn in history has ended in an upturn. You need to remember that the eighth wonder of the world is compounding. And if you can remember those things, you will have a much better and more financially healthy life. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's dive into the stocks and sectors you need to watch in the trading day ahead. First of all, take a look at what's happening with stock market volatility, because it is at the lowest level that we've seen since February of last year. Now, this particular chart shows the VIX, and basically what it tells you is that stock market volatility has cratered since seeing some of those pandemic highs that we saw in March of last year. So things appear to be back to pre-pandemic normal, at least for one indicator in the stock and markets right now. As for what's happening trend-wise, we've been talking about the value cyclical rotation, people going to names that aren't necessarily Apple, Microsoft, and Google. But check out what's happening with Apple, Microsoft, and Google so far on a year-to-date period. Apple is still down, but Microsoft is now up about 14%, and Alphabet is up nearly 30%, And again, just the year-to-date period. So maybe there's a scenario where those mega-cap technology and communication services stocks are starting to lead again and curry some investor favor. And then lastly, check out what's happening with the financials, specifically the bank stocks. The S&P Bank ETF is up 59% over the course of just the last you know, six months or so. On the financial sector, Spider, it's up about 39%. I say this because next week kicks off earnings season, and we know, many viewers and listeners know, that earnings season kicks off with the big banks. For more on this and the overall markets, let's now bring in Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist and Portfolio Manager at Hightower. She is also, of course, a CNBC contributor. You see her all the time on the Halftime Report. Stephanie, thank you so much for the early call this morning. Let's talk about what's on your radar. How much are you, how much are, and how closely are you watching the banks? Good morning. Um, I am watching two things. I am watching the banks because I am overweight the banks. So I'm really excited about earnings next week. Next Wednesday, it all kicks off. Um, but I'm also watching this rotation, as you just mentioned. Uh, you know, it's been a kind of a quiet week, Dom. And But under the surface, you have had this massive rotation back into growth away from value. But I think it's more mean reverting 
to be honest, because the first quarter was all about value and it was all about banks and industrials and energy. Um, the XLK is up 7% year to date, but energy is up 28% and the financials are up 13%, excuse me, 18% and industrials are 13% year to date. So tech can make a, a comeback, but I do think these other, these other sectors are still very attractive because the economy is getting better. You mentioned what I'm looking for next week. We have JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America. I think the, the, the bank stocks are going to do very well next week in terms of net interest margins, capital allocations, and the valuations are still attractive, even though they've made such a big move. So I, I like the banks this year. Um, and I, I think even though they've had a nice move, again, I say the valuations are pretty attractive. And, and now you actually have some interesting dividends, uh, dividend yields, too. Fed is kind of loosening the reins. The Fed is loosening the reins on some of these banks to kind of return capital to, to shareholders in a more meaningful way in the coming months. Stephanie, many of these banks have diversified operations, but are, are there certain parts of the financial sector that you think are better positioned? You mentioned net interest margins. Do you think it's the traditional lenders that outperform in banks? Do you think it's the capital market intensive ones like Goldman or Morgan Stanley? What's got your attention the most within that kind of bank sphere? I mean, I think I think you just hit it. I think it's both. I think it's both. With the yield curve actually getting steeper, you're going to want to own something like a Bank of America, which has the most exposure to a, to a yield curve steepening. Um, but at the same time, trading and capital markets are are on fire. So Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs should do well. I personally like Wells Fargo because I think it's a turnaround story while you see a yield steepening situation, right? And Wells Fargo has a, it's a turnaround story. It, you have a new CEO. Well, not he's not new anymore, but he's there a year and a half. He's got a whole entire new executive committee. The asset cap can get lifted at some point, which will be a catalyst as well. And the stock is trading at one time's book. So I still think that Wells is an attractive idea. I think people are still very skeptical about it uh, and the turn. Um, and that's where I think your opportunity is. And then one last one for you, Dom, is American Express. That's your reopening name, right? T&E is going to come back eventually. Uh, they're spending a ton of money this year in terms of investments. And I think that's going to reap rewards uh, next year in terms of operating leverage. So that one I like as well. I, I think, Stephanie, the, the value kind of trade that you mentioned, this idea of trying to find beaten up names is something that resonates with a lot of our, our viewers and listeners out there. Are, are there other parts of the market that have not participated in the rally towards record highs that you think because of their underperformance and depressed levels could represent potential upside? I, I, I look at consumer staple stocks. They're some of the worst performers this year so far. Are there any names out there that you like? Well, that's interesting that you mentioned that because Pepsi reports next week as well, right? And they've lost three multiple points relative to the group. The group has been under pressure as well, and it's also lost one multiple point uh, um, uh, on a valuation basis, on a PE basis. So Pepsi has lost more, right? And it's actually down about three and a half percent on the year. And I think that'll be interesting to see how it trades when it reports. I'm pretty sure they're going to report a really good number. They always usually do. Um, however, it is a stay-at-home stock, right? They've benefited from that. I prefer Coke because 50% of their business is on-prem. And so as you reopen, their business should actually get better. And they're both down about the same. By the way, Coke, you get a little bit better dividend yield, um, about 3.2%. Um, but Pepsi will be interesting to see how it trades. I'm not a huge fan of Staples. They aren't exactly cheap. Um, but I do think that there are some pockets that you can that you can pick away at it within the group. Again, I mentioned Coke. I mentioned Estee Lauder. I like those two names a lot. Those are the two that I own. All right. So, uh, I guess 
there, there's a very bullish undertone to, to many of the things, that, the stories that you're telling right now. What exactly has got you scared the most in the coming six months? Oh, well, I think I'm watching inflation, <laughs> quite frankly. I'm watching how, how, how fast do we grow? We have all this stimulus. We have $100 trillion in stimulus globally that has been put in place over the last year. And we know, Dom, that it takes a long time to get stimulus into the system. And so I wonder how fast are we going to grow? Are we going to start to see a little bit more inflation? I look at unit labor costs at 0%. Sure. And I worry that we can only go up, <laughs> right, right, in that regard. So, so that's, those are the things that I, I, I watch the most. All right, inflation, a big concern. Stephanie Ling, thank you very much. We'll see you later on on CNBC today. We appreciate it. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. Have a nice weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.